Our first reading this morning, brothers and sisters, is from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. Nehemiah, chapter 1. I chose this passage because our text this morning is Psalm 85, And quite a few commentators believe that that was a psalm that was uh, written after the people returned from captivity in Babylon back to Jerusalem. And although the return was a wonderful gift of God coming back out of captivity, when they were back in the land, they again met difficulties and challenges, as we read about it also in the book of Nehemiah. And that's why I chose this reading. Now, the psalm, Psalm 85 itself, doesn't give any specific indication as to what time we're dealing with. It's possible it was at that time. It can also be other times. After all, God's word is meant for God's people of all times. But let's read Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the twentieth year as I was in Susa the citadel that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. And then Nehemiah will ask the king for a leave of absence to help the brothers in Jerusalem to rebuild the walls there. Our second reading is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2. 
And we read verses 11 through 22. And this passage is because in Psalm 85, after an initial request for restoration, there comes an answer, and the answer is the proclamation of peace. And we have to understand that in the light of what we read in Ephesians 2, verse 11 through 22, where Paul describes God's work in Jesus Christ, that by grace we have been saved in Christ. Verse 11 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Sermon this morning is on Psalm 85. Psalm 85. It has as a heading to the choir master a psalm of the sons of Koram. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, 
for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness spring up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, Psalms are much loved. I'm sure you have your favorite certain psalms that you turn to in certain situations in your life, psalms you like to sing. One of the reasons why we love the psalms is that they are so close to our lives. All the experiences that we can go through in life, you find them back in the book of Psalms, whether it is joy, whether it is anxiety, so many things are there that we can identify with. Brothers and sisters, the reason the Holy Spirit placed this book in our Bibles is not just so that we can see that the Bible understands the emotions that we may have, the experiences that we go through, but also to teach us. The book of Psalms in the Hebrew Bible belongs to what we call the wisdom literature. For example, Proverbs is in there, Ecclesiastes is in there, and so is Psalms. Now, wisdom in the Bible is given so that we know how to live to the glory of God. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. And so the book of Psalms is also a book of wisdom, a teaching book. And that means this, that all these experiences and emotions that are recorded in the Psalms and with which we can identify are put there to teach us how to react to them in a way that honors God. It is a teaching element here that wants us to show this is how you deal with these emotions and this is how you may respond to it. And with that in mind, we want to look also this morning at Psalm 85. What is the Holy Spirit teaching us when we sing this song? You may have noticed that Psalm 85... Uh, consists mainly of two parts. The first seven verses are directed to God. He is addressed, you, and they are a prayer. They are a prayer for restoration, for revival, for showing steadfast love, for granting salvation. That's the first part. And then in the verses 8 through 13, there God is spoken about in the third person, He. 
And there you have, you could say, the response or the answer. So you have the prayer and you have the response to this prayer. And the prayer is about restoration and the response is about peace. And that is what the lesson that we have this morning is about. How do we pray for restoration and how do you understand the peace that is proclaimed to us? So I proclaim to you God's word this morning under this theme, God's peace restores God's people. God's peace restores God's people. We'll first look at our prayer, and then we'll look at the response. So verses 1 through 7 is a prayer. And you see that in verse 4 when it says, Restore us again, put away your indignation. Verse 6, will you not revive us again? Those two verbs, restoring and reviving, have in them the indication of going back to something that you had before. If you pray for restoration of your health, then you're asking that you again be restored in the position that you had and the health that you had before. So there is here a longing, you could say, to going back to something that they had enjoyed. And now they're missing it. It is not there. And so now they say, Lord, God of our salvation, restore this to us. That's all we ask. Show your steadfast love in giving to us again what we had before. Revive us. And how true this is. How often do we not pray this? When you're healthy, you're very thankful. Thankful for the blessings that you receive each day. You can get up in the morning, do your work. But then when you become sick, or when a loved one is sick, then often we pray, Lord, just give back what we had. Restore the health of our loved one. That he or she again can do what what he or she used to be able to do. Restore. It also indicates something of an uncertainty as to what lies ahead. We don't know. So just, just bring us back again to what we had, because at least we know then what we had and what we could do. It also applies to Our worship, when we are able to worship without limitations, we can easily take it for granted. And now that we are not able to do that, and we have limitations, now we we feel that, and I hope we pray for restoration. And that we say, Lord, again, allow us to do what we used to be able to do. Come together as your whole congregation and sing praises to you and worship you and use the sacraments. We cannot the way we used to, and we miss it. And so we pray. So what we have here in this prayer for restoration, restore us again, is something very human, something we all do. Now, what is the Spirit now teaching us about this prayer? 
And I start with the verses 1, 2, and 3. Because they are about the past. And they speak about things that happened in the past. And I want to point out that in the verses 1, 2, and 3, the Lord is in the center. It says, Lord, you were favorable. You restored. You forgave. You covered. You withdrew. You turned. Every time it is the Lord who is in the center. That doesn't mean that the people are out of the picture. Not at all. But it is the Lord who is in the center. And what is in the center is what he has done in the past. You could say that is his name. That is his reputation. Lord, this is how we knew you. This is how you showed yourself to us. This is what you did for your people. So the prayer to be restored goes back to what God has done in the past. Notice that Nehemiah does the same when he prays in Nehemiah 1. And he knows that Jerusalem is falling apart again. He says, Lord, remember what you did in the past, what you said through your servant Moses and, and how you have done that in the past. And so often in the Psalms, you see this, that when there's a need in the present, then God's people go back to the past. This is what you have done. This is how you revealed yourself. This is how we have come to know you. So why do you change? So God is in the center, his name, his reputation. But then notice also in the verses 1, 2, and 3, that in particular, his reputation is about his mercy. You were favorable to your land. You restored the fortune. You forgave the iniquity. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. So the recognition that the deepest problem has always been our sin. Our deepest problem is not health. It's not a pandemic. Our deepest problem is our sin. And that we have come to know our God as a God who forgives sins. So it is an appeal to God's mercy. So they appeal to God in his character, and then in particular in his character as the merciful God. Think of what God said to Moses when he passed by Moses on Mount Sinai. The Lord, the Lord, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's what they appeal to, his name. Now that was in the past, verses 1, 2, and 3. The present situation is different, and that's what we come to in verse 4 through 7. Now we speak about the current situation. So there comes now the request. What was there in the past is no longer the case. Now this request in verses 4 through 7 works with what we have learned from the past. The same two elements that were in verses 1, 2, and 3, are also in the verses 4 through 7. In a way, you can say the psalmist applies that. Notice that God is in the center. Verse 4, restore us again, O God of our salvation. 
And ends verse 7. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord. Grant us your salvation. God is in the center. There's no, no element here of, well, Lord, this is unfair that you do this. How can you do this to us? We don't deserve this. No, there is here a humbling under the mighty hand of God. We recognize, Lord, that you are doing this. This hardship, this trial, you place on our path. And therefore, with you only is hope. So that we also may serve you in joy. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6, the reason why they want to be revived. It says that your people may rejoice in you. The purpose is not so that I again can do what I was used to doing. And I again can do what I would love to do. No, the restoration, the revival is so that the joy is in God. That's our goal. That's our purpose. You see how God is in the center? But it can only happen when the root of all this trouble is taken care of. And we said that is sin. And so here too in verse 4, put away your indignation. In verse 5, will you be angry forever? Now, there is no specific sin mentioned here. As if there was something that the people did that caused the Lord to do this. That happened sometimes in the Bible. We have examples of God's people going the wrong way and the Lord dealing with that. And then the psalm also uh, deals with that. I think, for example, in a personal sense in, in David. And in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, where David has to deal with his own sin and the Lord makes him feel what he has done. And so he confesses his sins. There's no specific sin mentioned here. So we should not think as if the people at this point were doing something that was totally wrong. They were maybe serving idols or other things. No, this is more in general. And the point is here, this, brothers and sisters, that when God puts hardship on the path of his people, he can do that in order to make them realize who they are in themselves before him. He can put difficult things on our path so that we learn, and sometimes in a painful way, that we deserve nothing at all. It has to be a cause for us to humble ourselves before the Lord. So that's what we have to ask ourselves too as we go through the limitations in worship, as congregation, and it grieves us. Are we also humbling ourselves before the Lord? And that we, through this, to realize, Lord, we, do, we don't deserve to be restored again. But we ask it only out of mercy, out of grace. And we ask it so that your anger be taken away. For the basis of all restoration is forgiveness. Forgiveness. And what gives the psalmist the right to ask this? What gives us the right to ask this? Because of who God is. His name. 
his promises, his character. Yes, and as we sing Psalm 85, as New Testament congregation, we know what happened 2,000 years ago when God sent his son to this world to restore us. What we broke, he had to restore to revive us again in his resurrection from the dead. That is what we're asking for here. That's what we need to ask also in our current circumstances. Going to Jesus Christ and what God has given to us in him and pray for restoration, pray for hope, for revival. Restore us again, Lord. Again, allow us to do what we used to do because we know you in Jesus Christ as the God who is merciful, who is slow to anger, who is abounding in steadfast love. Pray that. That's the lesson. For as we come to the conclusion of this first part, this prayer, what is it that the Holy Spirit is teaching us? When we pray for restoration in your own life, perhaps, things in your family, what do you need to do? We need to know who God is. We need to know his majesty, his power, his sovereignty. And then secondly, we have to humble ourselves before him and acknowledge that we don't deserve anything. So that in the third place, We find our hope in God's work in Jesus Christ, in his mercy. For only that mercy opens up the future. If I had to do it in my own strength, we could not. But he opens it in his love. And that brings us now to the second part of Psalm 85, the response. You notice in verse 8, there is a change in the psalm. It says there, let me hear what the Lord, what God the Lord will speak. Suddenly there is a me, that's the first person. Someone is talking here. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. Who is this person? Well, the heading says this is the psalm of the sons of Korah. So we may say it is one of the sons of Korah. One of the men who were involved in making these psalms. Now the sons of Korah were priests. And they served in the temple. So you may also say that the sons of Korah as priests are representatives of God's people. That was the function of the priest. They were the in-between. God's people, God and in between were the priests who brought the needs of the people to God and the blessing of God back to the people. So when he says, I will speak or let me hear what God will speak, then yes, he speaks as a representative. So you may say, he is our voice. So again, you have here what the Spirit is teaching How should you respond? 
Now that you have brought this request before the Lord, now you have asked the Lord to restore you again, what do you do next? Well, then you go, it says, to the word of God. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people. He will speak. It's quite strong here in the sense of, yes, for sure, he will speak. So you don't have the attitude here of, I'll lay my request before the Lord and it's just wait and see. Maybe he will say something. Maybe he won't say anything. No, there's a certainty here. He will speak. It's no question. How does he know that? What gives him and us the certainty that when we lay our request before the Lord, he will speak to me. Well, there you have again the character of our God. How does he come to us? In his word. That's who God is, the word. And, and as we read in Deuteronomy 30, for example, when, when Moses speaks to his people and he says, that word is not far away. You don't have to go way up in the universe to find that word somewhere, travel all over to, to search it, go in the depths of the ocean to find it. No, that word is right with you. You have it in your hands. You can speak it. You can read it. You can meditate on it. That is his word. There you have his answer. There's where he responds to your request. He is the God who speaks the word. So, brothers and sisters, when we are in trials and we have our prayers and we multiply prayers, when there is indeed a need in your life, what do you do then? Once you have laid this before the Lord, <clears throat> then you have to listen. Listen to what the Lord says. Not the attitude of, I demand an answer, I want a change, and I want it now. Now, having laid the request before the Lord, then you say, now I have to listen to his word. That's the proper attitude. Let me just listen to what he says. And that means dig into his scriptures. Read them. Make him your own because that word is not far from you. And it comes to you in him who is called the word. The living word. Jesus Christ. Now notice that not only is the author certain of God speaking... He also is certain about the contents of what God will say. First eight again, middle sentence. He will speak, and what will he speak? Peace to his people, to his saints. That is the contents. That is the response of God, peace. And again, the question, how does he know that? Did he have a revelation somewhere in between verse seven and eight? No. Remember, he's a priest. And would you find a priest in Israel? In the temple, the tabernacle. 
And if you would bring there your sacrifice, you would go there with your lamb or with your goat or with a cow and a heifer, and you go there, then you would put your hands on the head of the animal and then the priest would butcher it. Your sins were upon that animal. And then the priest would take the blood of that animal into the holy place. And then the coals of the fire where the animal was burnt, he would take also into the holy place and bring it before the Lord, pray on your behalf for restoration, for forgiveness, and he would come back out of that holy place, come back to you as you were waiting in the courtyard, and what would he say? He would say, peace to you. Depart in peace. The face of the Lord is shining upon you. His countenance is turned toward you. That's the blessing that we use too. This morning you'll hear it. There you have the answer. And it was the climax in the the whole worship in the temple. When you came there with your sacrifice and you knew your sins and you, you humbled yourself before the Lord and then the priest came back again and says, yes, God has accepted your sacrifice Go home in peace. And don't return to folly. That means don't try to do it again your own way and continue in sin. There you have the answer. And that word peace is central here in the second part of Psalm 85. And in a way you can say it summarizes the beauty of God's relationship with his people. His restored relationship with his people. For peace here means that life is restored in its full harmony. It is in the right relation with God. You're not ashamed before God. It's also in the right relationship with one another. Peace is a very encompassing term here. Shalom. That life again is restored in the way God meant it to be. That the relationship with God is good and he looks at you and you can look at him. There's nothing between you. And that between people it is restored. And this is happening when the glory of God again is in the midst of his people. Verse 9, the glory may dwell in the land again. When the cloud came down in the tabernacle or the temple, it describes a beautiful, harmonious life where all trials and all difficulties, all obstacles are taken away. And you notice in verses 10 and 11 the beautiful description of that peace. And there's something that we need to take in, to savor. Look what it says there in verse 10. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Not only do you have here four very important words that speak about the relationship that we have with God and with one another. Steadfast love, faithfulness, righteousness, peace. Those are words that overlap in meaning. Steadfast love is the commitment that you have to others. Reliability, that is faithfulness. Righteousness, that you do the right thing toward each other. And peace, where there's harmony. 
That is what God gives. And notice that these four have, have fellowship. It's as if they are persons. They meet each other. Steadfast love meets faithfulness. And they're together. And righteousness and peace, they embrace each other and they kiss each other. That shows you the, the, the wholeness of life, the harmony of life. And in verse 11, faithfulness springs up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from the sky. So there too, the relationship between heaven and earth is restored. There's faithfulness, commitment. It comes up from the ground. The right thing comes down from the sky. It all points to a life that is restored in its full glory. God and his people together, where his people marvel and rejoice in the glory that he gives to them. You have here a foretaste of what Revelation 21 and 22 speak about. Life restored in the full glory of God. Now, how does this answer the present need of the psalmist or of the people. How is this an answer to the first prayer? Restore us again, O Lord. How does this picture of faithfulness and righteousness and peace and so on, how does it help the people in the present circumstances? It seems to be more about the future. Almost as if, yeah, just don't worry, it eventually will become good. Well, there's more here. It is true, eventually it will become more than we can even understand. But do not take that as something that is only for the future. The knowledge of the future, of what God says he will do, opens the door today to walk with him. For the peace that, that's spoken about here, yes, it will find its completeness there eventually, but it's the peace that we have already. I mentioned what happened in the temple. When the priest came out of the holy place and said, put his hands up to people and say, God's peace is with you. Did he just say, well, maybe one day it will happen? It's not a dream, it's real. It's real. They could go home with the knowledge, yes, God has peace with us, and we have peace with him. Our sins are paid for. We are restored to each other. So God is saying, I give it to you now. Yes, the completion will come yet. The fullness. But that means not, that does not mean that there's nothing here. You now are ready have the beginning. I think of what Lord's Day 22 says. I have now the beginning of that eternal blessedness that I will possess after this life, but now already. And that's why in verse 13, at the end of the psalm, there again we return to the present. In the sense, we talk about footsteps. We talk about a path. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. That means 
as God is traveling and as his people are traveling, this is the path that he has laid out. It is the path of peace. And that path leads to the most wonderful future. And each event that happens in your life and each experience and each trial and each difficulty, it is all part of that path that leads us to that future. And if they could sing that already then in the days of the sons of Korah, how much more can we? And we know that the peace with God has been restored fully, completely in Christ. Because remember, on that day when he rose from the dead, when the disciples were hiding in the room because they were afraid, and suddenly the Lord Jesus is there, the risen one. And what does he say to them? What does he say to them? Peace. Be with you. Those are the first words that come from his lips. And what he's saying there is all that that Old Testament looked forward to. What a priest said every time again. I now indeed make it true fully, completely. And I'm now leading you from here to the certainty of that fullness. I'm leading you now through all the things in your life, all the challenges, all the trials. I will lead you to that eternal blessedness. And as I lead you, you already have my peace. Isn't that what Paul says in Ephesians 2? He is our peace. And every Sunday, brothers and sisters, the Lord comes to you and he proclaims it to you. He brings you again back to him and back to each other. He restores life. He gives you fellowship. So he says, hold on to my word, my word of peace. Let me listen to what God will say. He will proclaim words of peace. Well, he does every Sunday again. And that is our strength as we walk on. I said in the beginning this morning that this prayer to be restored is human, and we all do it, that we want to again go back to what we had, but it also has in it the element of uncertainty about the future. How will it go? We don't know. And now the Lord is saying, and the Spirit is teaching us, and he's saying what you need to know, on the basis of what happened in the past, you should know what you have in the present so that you will have confidence and hope for the future. That is a lesson. You see how past, present, and future come together in Jesus Christ. And the Spirit is telling each one of us, you need to know what you have in Jesus Christ, in the gospel of peace. It is not a dream. It is real. It's too bad that we cannot celebrate the Lord's Supper, and that you have not celebrated the Lord's Supper for a while. Because that is what the Lord's Supper does. When you hold the bread, and you hold the peace of God. When you drink the wine, 
you, you drink, you're assured, you taste it, you smell it. The peace of God, that's how real it is. And he say, now I'm going to lead you forward. We tend to look back, don't we? If only it's again the way it was. And the Spirit says, yes, what happened in the back is very important. Look what God has done there. But you need to know that not to return there, but to look ahead to the future. And I'm leading you there. I'm the trailblazer. I'm the one who goes ahead. And I will give you more than the past can ever give. Because the present pain is not worth comparing to the glory that is to come. Romans 8. And so, brothers and sisters, Psalm 85 says that in the uncertainties of life, in the desire to have life restored, we have to find our peace and we have our peace in Jesus Christ. Because he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And with him, you can go ahead. And therefore, I want to end with what Paul writes in Philippians 4. In Philippians 4, the end of verse 5, he says, The Lord is at hand. So he also is directing us to the future. The Lord is at hand. And then he says in verse 6 of chapter 4, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So as you are on that trail, that path to the future, you meet hardships, grief, difficulties, and by prayer and with supplication and, and, and with thanksgiving, put them before the Lord, Psalm 85. And then verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. When you lay your request before the Lord, then the peace of God, and that surpasses understanding, it guards, protects your mind, your thinking, your life in Jesus Christ. Amen.